0: Hello everybody, this is Jennifer Matteris, and let's just get the usual housekeeping out of the way first. As always, if you want to help support the podcast, you can do so with a one-time donation through PayPal at our email address, which is mail.com or per episode through our Patreon. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you'd like, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and whatever other podcast app you might listen to it through. Secondly, due to there being multiple time zones involved in this particular episode, all times are in Coordinated Universal Time, which is basically Greenwich Mean Time. And before I start, I just want to preemptively apologize for any name or place name that I might pronounce, or mispronounce, I should say. There are a couple of names in here that I really didn't get a chance to practice, so if I screw it up, my apologies. And with all of that taken care of, thank you very much for listening, and welcome to Disaster Area. (music) Episode 36 Ethiopian Airlines Flight 961, November 23rd, 1996. 125 deceased, 46 injured. Hijackings have been a reality of manned flight almost since its very inception. In 1928, Clarence Frechette attacked pilot Harry Anderson with a ball-peen hammer and struggled with him over control of the plane, causing it to crash over Detroit. Most hijackings are politically motivated, terroristic, or, in the cases like the infamous DB Cooper, simple demands for money. Prior to 9-11, only a handful of hijackings resulted in crashes and high casualty counts. However, the deadliest hijacking before the events of September 11, 2001 has one major thing in common with that day. You have all seen video of the end result, though you may need to be reminded of which video that is. The Flight 961 airplane was nicknamed Zulu. It was $40 million airplane, and the reason that it was nicknamed Zulu was after the final letter in its registration number, which was Z. It was a Boeing 767-200ER, which spent most of its life in the Ethiopian Airlines fleet, save for a stretch with Air Tanzania from May 1991 to February 1992. Boeing manufactured the plane in 1987, and Ethiopian Airlines received the plane on October 22nd of that year. Its maiden flight was on September 17, 1987, and at nine years of age and 32,000 flight hours, it had a very good reputation among the crews who worked for Ethiopian Airlines. They really liked that plane. The flight crew consisted of pilot-in-command Leul Abate and First Officer Jonas Mikuria. Abate was forty-two years old and had eleven thousand five hundred flight hours under his belt, while thirty-four-year-old Mekuria possessed six thousand five hundred flight hours. Now, on Saturday, November twenty-third, nineteen ninety-six, the plane and its crew were looking forward to a busy twelve-hour day. The plane would depart from Bole International Airport in Addis Ababa in. Ethiopia and head to its first stopover at Jomo Kenyatta International Airport in Nairobi, Kenya. Its next stopover would be at Mayamaya Airport in Brazzaville in the Republic of the Congo. After that, it would fly to Myrtalo Mohamed International Airport in Lagos, Nigeria. And its final destination is what was Port Buey this is where I'm going to screw up, airport in Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire. When it left Addis Ababa, it would be carrying 14,500 kilograms of fuel, enough and then some for it to reach its first stopover in Nairobi, where they would add more fuel to the plane. The flight would end up leaving at 8.09 a.m. It would have to wait a little longer than it expected to for a connecting flight to arrive. Of the passengers on board, there were more than one who were in the diplomatic community. One of those on board was Franklin Huddle. He was the United States Consulate General to Mumbai along with his wife, Chanya. Frank and his wife were on vacation on their way to Nairobi. Frank and Chanya had already been having a pretty good trip. They were actually able to get an upgrade to business class on the plane at the very last minute. So they would gotten a little lucky, and he had also chosen this flight very carefully for safety reasons. Ethiopian Airlines had a very good safety record, and he chose a daytime flight as those were supposed to be safer as well. All in all, they should have a short flight and then be on their way to Kenya uh, to their safari. Another passenger on the plane who was fairly well known was Mohamed Amin or Mo Amin as all of his friends seem to call him in interviews. Amin was a well-known photographer and journalist whose most notable moment were the emotional photos he took of the Ethiopian famine in the 80s, which played a large role in showing the rest of the world just how much help was desperately needed in the devastated country. It actually led to a lot of the charity events, Live Aid, all of those songs that were put out that. To kind of raise money to feed the hungry in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Excuse me. By all accounts, if an important event struck in that area of the world, Amin was in the center of it all with his camera at the ready. He was always jumping into the action. He covered the Black September Uprising in 1970, and at one point he even ended up losing his left arm when an ammunition dump in Ethiopia exploded. It was also not a surprise that he might use Ethiopian Airlines. He'd published the company's in-flight magazine, Salamta. For the first 20 minutes, as the 767 rose through Ethiopian airspace, the flight remained completely normal. Then, at about 31,000 feet, a man darted down the aisle. Witnesses described him as yelling and waving his arms as he bolted toward the cockpit. Most people just thought he'd lost his mind, at least until the two other men followed behind him as Frank Huddle tells it, when the, where the first man kind of thundered up the aisle, the second two glided up the aisle, very quiet and very determined. According to him, that was the moment he knew it was a hijacking because they were coordinated. Because it was pre-911, the door to the cockpit wasn't the reinforced steel with locks that we have today. The three hijackers busted into the cockpit door and immediately assaulted the First Officer, beating First Officer Mercuria before throwing him out of the cockpit. The hijacker who took the lead told Captain Abate that there were 11 hijackers, not just the three of them. Since Abate had not seen them running up the aisle, he didn't know otherwise. The hijackers then got on the intercom and claimed in English, French and Amharic, which is the language spoken in Ethiopia, to have a bomb or a grenade. One of the hijackers held what looked like a shoebox with wires sticking out of it, what Frank Huddle described later on in an interview as what a teenager would kind of hastily throw together in an art class for a high school play's prop bomb. The hijackers also took the fire extinguisher and removed the fire axe from its cabinet. They didn't have to bring real weapons through security and onto the plane. They clearly knew where they could just find some. And then, just for the hell of it, they took some whiskey from the duty-free cart as well. While the other two men stepped out into the cabin to keep an eye on the passengers, the lead hijacker threatened to blow up the plane if they were not taken to Australia, a request which shocked Captain Abate. It wasn't the hijacking itself which shocked him. In fact, Captain Abate's record already sported two hijackings. The first was a local flight in which two hijackers with grenades wanted him to fly them to Nairobi. The second happened a few years later with a hijacker who demanded to be taken to Sweden. Both times, Abate was successfully able to bring the flights to the ground with no deaths or injuries. Besides, hijackings were relatively common in that area of the world. Ethiopian Ethiopian Airlines itself dealt with 10 hijackings in the previous six years alone. One of the hijackers brought forth a copy of Salamta, the in-flight magazine, the very same one published by Mo Amin. According to the magazine, the plane they were in could fly for a maximum of 11 hours. It would take only 10 hours to fly to Australia from where they were. This is where the problem was. Captain Abate tried to explain. 11 hours was what the plane could fly with its full tank of fuel. They didn't carry that much fuel with them on every flight, however. That's not how airplanes work. Zulu had enough fuel on board to fly to Nairobi, its next destination, plus some extra fuel if they needed to circle the airport or divert. But certainly not 11 hours worth of fuel. That much fuel would make the plane heavier, meaning it could not fly at higher altitudes where the air was thinner. It could also be a catastrophic firestorm if they should crash. The lead hijacker thought Abate was lying. No amount of explanations would make it clear to him that a commercial flight making multiple stopovers throughout the day would not be carrying enough fuel from the very start to fly from Africa all the way to Australia, which, if you've ever seen a map, is quite a bit away. (laughs) Bate knew flying out over the open Indian Ocean was not an option as soon as they ran out of fuel the engines would stop and they would glide downward toward the water no matter what they attempted to do for the time being abate stuck to flying south along the coast of africa and just hoping that the hijackers didn't notice he continued to try to persuade the lead hijacker to allow him to land to get more fuel he proposed Nairobi, Dar Salaam, anywhere where they could fill up before flying to Australia. The leader refused to allow it. In the cabin, flight attendants confirmed to confused passengers that yes, this was a hijacking, but everyone should remain calm. And the hijackers weren't attacking the passengers. They hadn't killed anyone. They'd only really hurt the first officer. It, it It just wasn't that sort of hijacking. Still... Frank Huddle hid his black diplomatic passport just in case they decided to start going after the more important people on the plane. As he put it in an interview, it was time for him to become a private citizen. Back in the cockpit, Captain Abate informed the hijackers he needed to contract air traffic control to tell them what the situation was since they were still in ethiopian airspace captain abate got on got in touch with addis ababa he told air traffic control there that they had been hijacked and the hijackers wanted to go to australia they were then passed over to nairobi air traffic control whom captain abate also informed about the hijackers intentions so nairobi control says to that says to captain abate Confirm you are going to land Australia. And Captain Abate says, Gentlemen, we can't make Australia. We have only two hours of fuel. We can't make it to Australia. We will make a water landing. Nairobi Control says, Confirm you can't divert to Mombasa. And Captain Abate tells Control, they refuse to land anywhere other than Australia so we have no choice except when we finished our fuel we will land on water Nairobi control says but with two hours of fuel you can't make Australia why don't you land Mombasa at this point Abate put the air traffic controller on speaker so that the hijacker could hear and informed air traffic control so that he could repeat what he just told Captain Abate At this point, Nairobi Control says, Okay, I am advising you that with two hours of fuel you will be unable to reach your destination and probably you will have to land in the water. The best solution for you is to land in Mombasa. The lead hijacker, however, continued to refuse to allow Abate to land in Mombasa for refueling. Nairobi Control asked, Confirm you are ready to land in the ocean and drown? Abate said, I have no alternate aerodrome. Sir, I am in a very tight corner. At this point, the lead hijacker angrily took away Abate's sunglasses and headset and said, no more information. From this point on, there is no communication between Flight 961 and the ground. Not long after this, the hijacker notices that they are still close to the coast of Africa, heading south rather than east. So he issues a threat. Turn the plane toward Australia, or else he will blow up the plane. When the lead hijacker ordered Captain Abate to turn away from the coast of Africa, Abate needed to think fast. The charts used to direct their way to a new location were on the other side of the hijacker, tucked behind. Uh, excuse me, beside First Officer Mercuria's seat, but Captain Abate did not. Uh, did have. Excuse me, a small pocket atlas over by his seat he removed it and quickly started plotting his next move what is between them and australia captain abate decided his best option was to locate a place where he could circle the plane until it ran out of fuel or the hijackers would allow him to land whichever came first but it also needed to be small enough so the hijackers wouldn't notice he was staying in one place rather than flying farther out over the indian ocean he soon found the perfect place, the Comoros Islands. Now the Comoros Islands are a small nation between the uppermost coasts of Mozambique on the mainland and the much larger island of Madagascar. If you look at them on a map, it's basically this tiny little dot or a couple of tiny little dots right between the top of Madagascar and Africa. Abate aimed to circle the island of Grande Comore. The capital city of Moroni was on the west coast of the island, and the Prince Said Ibrahim International Airport lie only 15 kilometers north of the city. The lead hijacker, the one who stayed in the first officer's seat, was more like an irritating child than a threat. He pushed buttons, he turned dials, he tried to fly the plane by himself. He drank from the bottle of whiskey that he had and offered some to Captain Abate, who understandably declined because he needed to fly the airplane. If he could have spun in his chair, from all accounts, he would have. Aside from the fact that they kept threatening to blow up the plane, a lot of what this particular hijacker seemed to do seems to be more like a kid throwing a tantrum than anything else. Soon enough, an alarm sounded in the cockpit. There was less than 30 minutes of fuel available. As the lead hijacker continued to just randomly push buttons and play with dials, turning things off that the captain still needed to use, another alarm sounded as one of the two engines stopped at 39,000 feet. The right engine went silent and the passengers noticed. With one engine not working, the plane slowed, and as it did, it descended to a lower altitude. The lead hijacker leaves the cockpit for a moment, and Captain Abate spotted his chance to fill the passengers in on exactly what is going on. He opens the intercom, and he says the following, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot. We have run out of fuel, and we are losing one engine this time and we are expecting crash landing, and that is all I have to say. We have lost already one engine, and I ask all passengers to react to the hijackers. Here, Abate's voice was cut off, as the lead hijacker had heard him talking on the intercom, re-entered the cockpit, and knocked the microphone out of his hand. The passengers were both terrified and confused by the pilot's announcement. It was already clear that something was wrong with the plane, but to have confirmation from the pilot was a bit of a nightmare. It was the pilot's final words which confused many passengers, however. React? What did he mean by react? The pilot made his announcement in English, which left those who didn't speak English already out of the loop. But even those who did weren't quite sure what he meant by react what captain abate meant to do was encourage the passengers to try and fight back so that he could get regain control of the plane however there were two problems first he could not come out and simply say fight back he didn't know if doing so would cause the hijackers to blow up the plane if they did have a bomb he didn't want to deal with that What he attempted to do was tell the passengers to go for it without alerting to the hijackers what might be coming. But in doing so with the word REACT, he may have been a little too vague. This was also not a time when people would fight back against hijackers. September 11th was still five years in the future, and the proper procedure and expectations at the time were just to sit tight and don't anger the hijackers. Fighting back might cause them to use the bomb they claimed to be carrying and not many wanted to take that risk. Not many, of course, does not mean everyone. Mo Amin got up from his seat and made his way back to economy class, pretending he was heading to use the restroom. Instead, once he got back there, he started talking to the passengers there, trying to persuade someone, anyone, to rise up. Come on, he would say, you know, let's go, we can take them. There are more of us than there are of them. Unfortunately, no one wanted to take the risk. The risk, excuse me. Preparing for the crash that was sure to come soon became the major priority for everyone on board. Everyone could see it coming at this point. Captain Abate was having enough trouble in the cockpit, where the hijacker tried to take control once again and disconnected the autopilot not long before another alarm sounded. The second engine was out. They had no fuel left. And while he'd been circling Grand Comore with the intention of attempting to land at Prince Saeed Ibrahim Airport, each second that passed made that plan much more difficult to execute. In the cabin, Frank Huddle said his I love yous to his wife in preparation for the crash. He was saying things like, you know, we've had a good run. I've loved being with you all these years. Those sorts of things that you say before you die. But his wife wasn't having it. As he tells it, you know, she's she was a psychiatric nurse and she was a very kind of kind of practical person and very very good in a difficult situation and she began giving him orders. Put your spare glasses in your pocket just in case. Put food in your pockets that won't make us thirsty. We're not going to have food service when we hit the water. All of that. Passengers begin to put on life jackets. They can see a water landing coming. It's clear that they are going to end up in the water and Captain Abate announces they should put them on but not inflate them. However, Panic had already started to erupt throughout the plane. Everybody was starting to get really, really panicky. And many people pulled the string on their vests to inflate them, even though they had been told not to. Frank Huddle said you could hear the pop, 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 pop of life vests inflating throughout the cabin. Huddle stood up on his chair and told those around him not to inflate their vests. And the first officer and the flight attendants hurried around to assist passengers in deflating them safely before the plane struck the water so that they could use them once they they landed. Hopefully they wouldn't be inflated when they hit the water. That would not be a good thing, as we'll come to see. Captain Abate had his eye on the airport. But when the hijackers tried once again to struggle for control of the plane, he lost it. The hijackers, either intentionally ignoring the seriousness of what was happening or just genuinely that oblivious, continued to order Captain Abate to bring the plane up higher and increase the speed. At one point, the lead hijacker told Captain Abate not to touch the controls anymore or he would kill him. Abate, presumably frustrated by now, snapped, I am already dead because I am flying an airplane without any engine power. With the hydraulics and flaps not working, steering the plane required a great deal of strength. Just imagine your car without power steering is very difficult to drive, so this is something that was an issue. He really needed the the help. So, Captain Abate and First Officer Mercurio were finally able to persuade the hijackers to allow Mercurio back into the cockpit to help control the plane. The plane careened toward the island much too fast, moving at 370 kilometers per hour, which is something like 200 miles per hour. But with no fuel and therefore no working engines, the crew were unable to slow the plane to a safer uh, landing speed. Captain Abate had been able to start the APU and the Ram Air Turbine. The Ram Air Turbine is a little propeller that pops out of the plane to gather wind power and maintain the most basic functions of the plane. But there was simply only so much the crew could do with what they had in front of them. Only so many things worked, and they were just going to have to fly this 100-ton glider where they could get it to. Now, as the plane descended, tourists on Lago- Galawa Beach watched it first with curiosity, thinking it was maybe a part of some air show set up for their entertainment. Then horror started to dawn as they realized what was about to happen. A South African tourist raised their video camera to ca- uh, capture the upcoming crash. The video of the crash would play on a loop on international news stations. It was a very intense video to watch, and it still is. In the video of the 767 approaching the water, it appears to be flying, or at least attempting to fly parallel to the waves. However, as the plane gets lower and gets closer to the water, its left wing dips into the water first, creating drag that pulls the plane upward and to that side. So it sort of kind of starts to roll. Part of the issue was the fact that the 767's engines attached to the bottom of the wings, meaning that when they struck the water, they would act as gigantic scoops, and in doing so impede the plane's landing to a catastrophic degree. This is the same concern the pilots in the Miracle on the Hudson would face, as their Airbus also possessed engines attached under the wings. However. Thankfully, they glided to a stop in the Hudson River, much like a plane without those particular style of engine would have a better chance of doing. But when Chesley um, Sullenberger and Jeffrey Skiles, the pilot and co-pilot on the Miracle on the Hudson plane, were attempting a safe water landing in the middle of New York, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 961's final shattering cartwheel is no doubt what they feared might happen to their plane. It is a terrifying visual when you see it in that video. And when I said at the beginning of the episode that you might not remember this particular video, if you look into the show notes after this particular episode and you look it up on YouTube and you watch it, you will definitely remember this flight. The plane struck the water at 12:20 and broke into four parts, striking the reef 500 yards from the beach near La Galawa (tongue twister) Beach Hotel and just barely missing a group of scuba divers. Those who survived the crash described it as an initial gentle bump, a second much harder bump, and then a third worse bump, which just devastated the plane. Except for the tail section, most of the planes sunk quickly, leaving those on the beach scrambling to help. Tourists who were in fishing boats and windsurfers sped toward the wreckage before even the rescue and fire safety called in from the airport could arrive. There was one stroke of fortune that arose, however. Some of the tourists on the island were part of a vacationing group of French doctors. Survivors were taken to Mitsumioli Hospital a mile away, but within hours they would be transferred to El Maruth Regional Hospital Center in Maroni. Maroni did not have a mortuary, so 124 bodies would end up stored in nearby cold rooms until they could be returned to their families. In the end, 125 people would die in the crash, 6 crew members, and 119 of the passengers. All three of the hijackers would perish in the crash, as would Mo Amin, who was last witnessed alive standing up and trying to reason with the hijackers. It is likely he was thrown against the bulkhead when the plane st- struck the water and he was just killed instantly. Many of the people who initially survived the crash died due to being trapped in the fuselage when their life vests opened while the plane was still in flight, kept them trapped. What happened was that when water began to fill the fuselage, those who were still inside it needed to get out, but as that section was quickly sinking, survivors needed to swim downward at points to get out through open spaces in the fuselage. Passengers who had not yet inflated their life vests were able to swim wherever they needed to without difficulty. The ones who had inflated their life vests during the panic before the crash found themselves trapped in rising water with a flotation device that pushed them toward the ceiling, and it made it impossible for them, or near impossible for them, to swim out of the wreck. In spite of the fact that the causes of the flight were fairly apparent, the Ethiopian Civil Aviation Authority was able to make several recommendations based on issues experienced during the hijacking. First, the flight recording equipment needed backup power supplies to keep running when all power goes out, as investigators would find the recorders had cut out shortly before the crash when the power had gone out. Another recommendation was that fire axes should be stored in a place where passengers cannot access them. Security at Bole International Airport was found not to be at fault. The hijackers didn't bring on a real weapon, they didn't have a bomb. The weapons were already on the plane, waiting for them. The flight crew were not allowed to go through the ditching checklist in the Quick Reference Handbook. Which, if you don't know anything about planes, um, it's basically, you know, it's a checklist that you go through, there's a checklist for everything. And there's one for when you ditch, which is when you land in water. Uh, but it was found that it didn't provide for ditching with all engines lost anyway, so it really wouldn't have helped. But that was something that they could improve upon. More tra- uh, training and cr- of crew members and flight attendants was also recommended in an effort to maintain the crew's ability to provide proper instructions to the passengers in an emergency, which they really had a difficult time with in this particular hijacking just because of how chaotic everything was. It would also later be suggested that sky marshals might have been able to stop the hijacking in a way everyday passengers were not in situations like this in disasters and and you see it in mass shootings a lot you see people who say well why didn't you just charge them why didn't you just run toward them what ha- happened on united flight 93 on september 11th when the passengers charged the hijackers? The reason that that is as heroic as it is, is because normal people don't have to do that or shouldn't have to do that. And so having a sky marshal on board whose job it is to do that is a way that you can make sure that it happens, as opposed to making people who are not up to doing this sort of thing do it. You know, it's one of the things that I I personally, to go off on a little tangent, but it's one of the things that I personally dislike about um, mass shootings and the coverage of mass shootings when people say, well, why didn't you just charge the shooter? Because that's how you get shot. And there are so many things that, that bother me about coverage of mass shootings, but... That is one of the the larger ones uh, that, that really bothers me in particular because he, why should he have had a gun in the first place that you should have to turn into a superhero rather than he just n- not have the gun? Whatever. The hijackers were later identified as Alameyahu, excuse me, Bekeli Belena, Matthias Solomon Belay, and Sultan Ali Hussein. Articles described them as two... Unemployed men who'd only graduated high school and a nurse, although it appears the articles really didn't identify who was whom. It, that was the information that was released from the government and they really didn't say which one was which. So, The hijackers claimed that they opposed the government and were put in jail because of it, at which point they were tortured and assaulted. They stated they escaped from prison and were going to Australia, which, as far as I could find, did not have an extradition treaty with Ethiopia. I also believe that they were going there to meet up with people that they knew, but I, I couldn't really find specific um, information, uh, a, a specific source that said as much. I can't, I believe I heard it somewhere in one of the many interviews and, and paperwork I saw, but uh I couldn't really find confirmation to put in my notes for that, so. Galawa, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time saying that word. Galawa held a memorial for those lost in the disaster on November 30th. Both Captain Leul Abate and First Officer Jonas McCuria survived the crash, and they received aviation awards following the disaster. In fact, Captain Leul Abate would be awarded the Flight Safety Foundation's Professional Award in Flight Safety in 1997, which is awarded to crew members who perform valiantly under extreme pressure. As of 2009, Leul Abate was still flying with Ethiopian Airlines. I believe he's still flying today. I'm not exactly sure. Um, I can, That was the last time that I could find a note that confirmed that he was still flying with Ethiopian Airlines. I was trying to think of what I wanted to talk about when I got to the end of the episode. Like, normally I have some sort of thing that I've been thinking about in regards to this um, particular disaster. And the thing about this particular disaster that I was thinking about a lot was Frank Huddle. And the reason that I was thinking about Hank. Frank Huddle is that every time that this particular disaster gets discussed on a documentary or it, there's interviews, they always seem to talk to Frank Huddle because, of course, he was U.S. Consulate General to Mumbai at the time. He would later go on to uh, diplomatic positions in Myanmar and uh, Tajikistan. If I'm remembering them correctly, but he, he's basically someone who, if you see him in interviews, he's kind of a, a dorky older guy, uh, you know, balding guy classes. Um, he's got a very calm demeanor. He smiles very easily, which seems kind of strange to bring up, but it's just, it's in an interview, you know, in an interview about a plane crash in, in an interview, about a hijacking, he is very, um. He's very easygoing, easy to listen to, and he was actually on one of the survival shows that I used to really like, which is I Survived. I Survived is, this is like this isn't in a commercial or anything, it's been off the air for a while. Um, <laughs> I Survived, if you've never watched it before and you like survival stories, I cannot recommend it enough. It's actually on Amazon. Uh, at least... There are four seasons. The last season, it was sold from A&E to Lifetime, and Lifetime basically did nothing with it, and that was the end of that. Uh, But the first three seasons, the first three of the five first seasons are are also on on there, and and he's in one of them discussing this particular hijacking. He is... uh, He's one of the ones in that particular episode who talks about his uh, survival story and it isn't about, uh, you know, it's just about a survival story. The thing that I like about I Survived when it was on A&E is that it, it was a show that gave, every episode had had a, Rape or sexual assault story, and I know that sounds terrible, um, but the thing was that every episode would have somebody who had maybe survived a plane crash or a ship sinking or uh, the, you know um, an abduction, something like that. Um, you know, uh, some kind of a car crash. You know, a couple of those things, and and it covered three different stories they it would just have a person sitting there telling their story with a black background no interviewer no questions they just talked and then they would cut to shots of of the locations where things happened and and provide captions with more information uh, they would you know if it was for frank huddle's story they had pictures of a plane that they would just show and and, um, and add this particular image. They showed the video of the plane crashing. Um, and they would always have a couple of stories that were just genuine survival stories, and then they would also have another survival story where it was a woman who had been through something horrible and then had been raped. It was mostly, mostly women. I think there were one or two um, rape or sexual assault stories where uh the uh, where there had been a male involved um, a man involved who had uh, been the the victim. And th- the reason that I bring this up it seems like something so strange, but it was something that I was thinking about while I was watching the episode with, Frank Huddle talking about this particular disaster, and I started watching other episodes that I had paid for on Amazon video of I Survive, including the Norway Massacre episode and, and other um, episodes. They have one on 9-11, which is very good. It's about an hour and a half long. It's, it's very, very well done, and it's not melodramatic. It's just very uh, simple, and the stories are amazing. But why I noticed it is because when they switched to Lifetime, and there are only three episodes from that particular season, and you can see the summaries on Amazon, pretty much every episode, all of these stories seem to be about rape or sexual assault. And I, 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 at some point, and I, I kind of, I, I considering the week that we have had, considering things that have happened in the media and in regards to the government and um, and the whole pre existing things and, and rape and sexual assaults coming up in the news uh, uh, as possible pre-existing conditions, all of those discussions that went on, it, it just sort of made me appreciative of the fact that that I survived up to a point up until up until it went to lifetime um it treated it treated the um these assaults and these rapes um with what I always felt was the precise amount of you know they didn't they didn't glorify it they didn't um make it seem like it was the only kind of survival story, which is which is something that really annoyed me about the summaries for the episodes that came from lifetime um it it seemed like it was just you know, I, I hate saying that word and it's just but it was just, constantly all of this story when it goes to lifetime and then when you go to to the ones that came from a and e it's actual survival stories people who were in planes and they crashed and they had to survive in the wilderness or people who were on boats and they sank people who went through so many different stories and it's one of those shows that um i love going back to and re-watching because you have um men and women people of of all stripes all y'all you know, different kinds of people who who were in these terrible situations and they managed to survive one of the things I always find really interesting about their stories too is that when you would get to the end of these stories at the end of the episode the kind of the, uh, the thing that they would do is they would have the person say, I survived because and make a statement like that. I survived because and it it was always interesting what people would say as the reason behind why they survived. There were people who would say, you know, I survived because uh, God gave me strength, which is great. Whatever, Whatever makes you, gives you that strength and gives you hope and makes you get through something like this is, is good. So all of these answers that everybody would give was great. You know, I, I, you know, God got me through thinking of my family, got me through thinking about my kids, got me through all of these, uh, answers that people would give were great. But my favorite answers of all, just because they were so rare were the really practical ones. And when I say really practical, I always go back to this one young woman Amazing story. I can't remember exactly what episode she was on, but she had been hanging out with some friends and um, they had started behaving strangely and then they had beaten her up. And, and at one point they had thrown her in the trunk of a car. They set her on fire. Uh, I think they set her on fire twice. Uh, they did some, some horrible things to her. And at the end of the episode, when everybody else normally says, you know, things like uh, God helped me through, God wasn't ready for me to die yet, or you know, I had to live for my kids, I had to make sure they were okay, I had to go on because you know I made myself go on, I I found the inner strength, that sort of thing, she said something along the lines of I survived because I was able to roll around and get the fire out. And then when I was locked in the trunk, I was able to undo the lock and get out and run away. And then I was able to do this. And it's just such a practical answer. I feel like I feel like that's the kind of answer that I would give if I ever survived something like that. And I was on a show like that and they asked me, well, how, how did you survive? I survived because... When the fire started, I ran for the exit that I knew. I had looked out my exits beforehand. I had done this, this, and this. I went that way. I walked out. I uh, did what I saw on episodes of Air Crash Investigations and Seconds from Disaster and all those other disaster shows that I watched. I did this, 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 and this. Frank Huddle does something along those lines. He basically said, um. I, he said, I survived because, and I, I love this part. He said, I survived because I had a wife who was, was smart enough and calm enough to tell me, do this, 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 and this, and make sure that we survived. Uh, they did both survive, by the way. Um, they uh, both popped up in the water afterwards. And that's one of the things that I like about him. He's, he's just very, um, uh, for example, in when he talks about after the crash, He popped up in the water, and he said out loud, hey, I'm alive. And he looked to uh, the one side where his wife had been sitting, and she wasn't there. And his heart sank. That's how he said it. And then he turned to his other side, and she was there. They sort of spun around. But I had seen that interview a hundred times, and then I saw another interview with him that had his wife included, and she said, yeah, he did say, "I'm hey, I'm alive uh, out loud. And it, there's just something really charming about him and really charming about the two of them. And that episode of I Survive where he says something like that and he says I survive because basically my wife is a genius <laughs> is just really charming to me. Um, I just, I really like him. He's one of my favorite survivors from a, a disaster. Uh, I also do have to say... Captain Leo Labate, if you do get around to seeing interviews with him, if you do watch documentaries uh, that are in the, the episode notes, he's fantastic. He talks about these hijackers in a very calm voice. It's very hard to imagine him getting as frustrated with these hijackers as I may have made him sound out to be throughout the episode. He... He's a man who has a light, much like Franklin Huddle. He has a very kind of a, a kind of a calm, even demeanor. And it, obviously, we're talking about interviews, so he's going. He, it, this is not a stressful situation, but he just doesn't seem like somebody who would really get angry. So, if he got angry at these hijackers, you really wouldn't blame him. A lot of the things that they were said to have been doing—pushing uh, buttons, turning dials, uh, knocking things over, breaking things—just drinking, getting drunk, being annoying, uh, it sounds more like something that a child would be doing. And I say that only in a metaphorical sense. There is another disaster that I'm going to get to one of these days in which an Aeroflot plane crashed in, I can't remember exactly where, Um, it was Russia. Siberia, that sort of area, Um, is flying from Russia to Singapore, and the reason that it crashed was partially because the the plane was new and the pilot had decided that the two children that he had brought with him, uh, he invited them into the cockpit, and then he allowed each of them to sit in his seat, And, and the plane was on autopilot, so they really couldn't do anything, but he allowed his daughter first to sit there and then his son to sit there, and he told them don't touch anything so they didn't and the uh son had put his hands on the the steering column and tried to steer a little bit and and doing so he accidentally turned off the autopilot it was something that nobody knew that he had done until the plane started to behave strangely and when the g-forces became too much it was really hard for him to leave the seat. They started to plummet. The pilot was finally able to pull his son from the seat and get into it and try to pull this plane out of the dive, but unfortunately, it crashed. And that boy, that child, tra- that child it was it was a preteen, I believe, behaved more adult in the same situation than these hijackers did. And so it's, it's, it's just really frustrating to, to, to read about these hijackers because if it were a comedy, that would be one thing. There's something really inept and, and, and comical about a lot of what they're doing, and at the same time, it is going to end up killing a lot of people. The miraculous thing is that 50 people survived. The fact that anybody survived this crash is is a miracle. They could have all died. And so that Leo Labate and Jonas Mercurio were able to save all of those people is, or at least the 50 that they were able to save at all, is impressive, especially considering what they had to deal with. They basically had the equivalent of that airplane Gremlin from the Twilight Zone in the cockpit with them. It's one of the, the plane crashes that I I find just fascinating just because there's video of it. Um, and you just if you if you don't know what crash I'm talking about even now and you go and look at that video, you'll remember it. It's just like the crash of flight. 232 which is the one in Sioux City where it crashed in a cornfield. There are certain disasters that we all remember because we see the video over and over again and of course it goes on the news and the news just loves playing that video over and over again. Uh, if it bleeds it leads which uh, is a just just a, a phrase that's, that's on my mind uh, lately just because of um, it, Christine Chubbick, there, there was a movie that was made about her that I did not know about, and I found it on uh, Amazon the other day, and I watched it. It's very good. Um, if you don't know who Christine Chubbick was, she was a, an anchor, uh, a reporter for a Sarasota, I, I believe it was Sarasota, uh, news station in the 70s, and she w- was under a lot of stress, and she had some depression issues, and... Uh, she had been trying to move up in her career and there were just a lot of problems and one day she came into work and and sat down before the uh sat down before the camera and said something along the lines of in accordance with our new policy of blood and guts we're going to show you a television first an attempted suicide at which point she removed a gun from her bag under the uh under the desk and shot herself in the head, and this is one of those things that, uh, stories that is very upsetting. Uh, the video itself is supposedly, uh, never shown, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you never see. Um, it's, I believed that they had destroyed all copies, but I, was Just kind of looking at Wikipedia because I watched the movie, and I believe there's one in a vault somewhere a video of her actually doing that. I know unfortunately that if you go on YouTube and you look for Bud Dwyer, who also uh, committed suicide on television, that is up there, but Christine Chupik is not. And so it's, it's just the, it's just the, the, these sorts of things. You want to see these horrible things on the news all the time. And so that's why, um, you know, uh, these plane crashes, they'll, they'll show them over and over again. The reason being that, you know, you don't show the Bud Dwyer video or you don't show the Christine Chopic video because they're graphic, because they're bloody, because they're somebody, you um, You don't show that, but, you know, you can show this plane crash where 125 people die because you don't actually see the people. You can you can see the plane crash, but you can't see the people themselves. So that's okay. But the, you know, the, you know, poor person who has come to a a a terrible point in their life and and ends up, um Uh, committing suicide Uh, you know that we can show Um, that we can't show Um, I know they they did had something like that a few years ago on a Fox affiliate I believe it was in California where there had been a a car uh, police chase and somebody had had pulled off the road and a helicopter was flying over and they were filming it they were showing it live and and the uh, person who had been chased just committed suicide there on, and they really didn't see that coming. I don't recall if they replayed that over and over again, but again, this is something that, that, um, you know, certain things are okay to show over and over again. And certain things aren't, if you see, you know, you remember the, you know, the the days after September 11th, they just played those videos constantly constantly we know that image because they play it constantly and so to go back to i survived there are so few of the stories that they tell that have you know a video to back it up um you know something to show for you know um, anything like that and in that particular case they did have a video. But other, you know, other things where people are, you know, shot or stabbed or or run over or left in a frozen lake, whatever, you know, of course they don't have videos for that. Uh, And if they did, you really want to see that. Um, Somebody had suggested that I cover Air Florida flight. 9-2, 9-2, nine nine, I can't remember the exact number, 8-2 or 9-2, it's one of them. The one that crashed on the bridge in Washington during a snowstorm in the 80s, early 80s. Uh, I'm totally going to do that crash. Trust me, I'm definitely doing that crash. Maybe maybe not next week, I'm doing a crash right now, but I'm definitely doing that crash eventually because that, I that's a survival story that is incredible and there's another one of my favorite survivors who is involved in that Um, but there was so much video of those people who were stuck out there in the wreckage that they had to go out and save all of these people who were on the banks going out to save them. Um, You know, you got video of one of the survivors who had been being towed back to the, uh, to the shore and they accidentally lost uh, their grip on her. And she's kind of flailing all over. And of course this had been such a tremendous crash that these survivors had, you know, Multiple broken bones and just terrible injuries, and and you can see that she has you know broken bones and and that she's been blinded by uh, by plane fuel in the water, and just there's so much that is really hard to watch about videos like that, and so that was what I was thinking of all. It's just the the way that the media portrays these different things and talks about things that you survive, things that affect you, things that you have no control over that, that harm you. And, you know, sometimes they treat it with respect and they treat it with dignity. And sometimes they say that it's, you know, um, it's something that everybody should be watching because, look, look, you can watch the plane flip over, over and over again. And, you know, you can't really see people die, so it's okay. And so it it's, it's just a lot of things that I've been thinking about the past week about the media and the way that it covers disasters and the way that it talks to survivors and the way that it treats survivors, not just of plane crashes and car crashes and things like that, but also of things like rape and sexual assault. I don't know what I'm doing next in regards to disasters. Um, I'm still working on the big one that I want to do. Um, I came up with another big one the other day, which I don't know why I did that, (laughs) um, because now I really want to do it. But... Um, Again, I I keep being spurred by things that are happening in the news and keep getting ideas from those. So we'll see how it goes in regards to what's coming up next. But somebody made a request to me on Instagram a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember the name of the person. I totally apologize. Uh, But I may actually do that until I can get all of the information I need to do the bigger disasters that I have coming up. But I hope You are all well, Uh, and until next time, stay safe.